Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus that will culminate on Easter Sunday. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God written for you and written for me. John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and there had been many people who had been baptized by John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Isn't that an interesting phrase? He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, 
I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now this past week we had a rare evening at home where we didn't have a commitment to go anywhere or do anything. And so... I was looking through the queue on our DVR for maybe a good show for Stephanie and me and Cole to watch maybe for an hour or two and a show popped up on the DVR called The Freedom Riders. Who here has ever heard of the Freedom Riders? Raise your hand. The Freedom Riders were a group of civil rights activists who organized in around 1961 and what their goal was to do is they were going to use interstate busing to challenge the segregation laws of the Deep South. Because um, some civil rights, some um, Supreme Court cases had come down that rendered segregation on the bus lines to be illegal. And so they were going to start in Washington, D.C. And then they were going to go down to Virginia and then Greensboro, North Carolina then Rock Hill, South Carolina, then they were going to go west to Atlanta, Georgia, then they were going to go west to Anniston, Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, Jackson, Mississippi, and then down to New Orleans to end. And at the beginning, and so what they were going to do is obviously um, uh, the black Americans and the white Americans, there was a group together, they were going to sit in the white section of the bus. And they were going to see how far south they could get until they were challenged and, um, and opposed and whatnot. And in the beginning, things went fine. They went from Washington to Virginia fine, then down to Greensboro fine, then down to Rock Hill fine, then even to Atlanta fine. But they were told in Atlanta that if they were to go on to Alabama, to Anniston and Birmingham, that things could get rough and things could get dangerous and violent and they did they got very dangerous and very violent and it was it was um, in some ways difficult to watch what happened but one of the most um, jarring things from watching this documentary on the Freedom Riders is what the elected officials in the Deep South actually had to say about what was going on. The hostility and the hatred and the animus that came out of elected officials' mouths. They also interviewed local citizens. The racism that was going on, the animus, the hostility, it was palpable. Like my son Cole, who's now 21, I mean, He'd never seen anything like that, heard anything like that. It was truly amazing. It's good to watch things like that from time to time. That's the background of our passage today. The animus and the hatred, the racial tension between Jew 
And Samaritan was a thing to behold. John, who's writing his gospel in John chapter 4, actually provides an editorial comment that's intended to show the reader how amazing it is that Jesus is talking with a Samaritan. What did John say about that? It's in a parenthetical remark in John 4. John tells you Jews have what? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Incredible animus and hatred between these two groups. Do you know why? Why is it that Jews and Samaritans had such hatred and animus for each other? I mean, there was... There had never been a better opportunity in Jesus' ministry to demonstrate the power of the gospel than in this situation. If you look at the beginning of the text, John provides this editorial comment um, in verse 4 that theologians have taken in different ways over the years. So, I, I wish I would have printed up a map for you. I should have provided an insert. But those of you who have study Bibles or whatnot, you can look at a map. And you can see that Jesus is traveling north, okay? And the quickest way to get from where he was up to the north, up to Galilee, was to travel through Samaria. But Jews in Jesus' day would not travel through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. They would view themselves as becoming unclean. And so they would go east of the Jordan River, north, all the way around Samaria, and then come back west to Galilee. But look at this comment from John. You know, at first reading it can appear, appear like a throwaway comment, but it's not at all. It says, and he, he Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. He didn't have to from a geographic standpoint. He had to because the Samaritan people were exactly who the gospel of Jesus Christ was for. But in order for us to appreciate what a watershed moment this was, we have to understand a little bit about the tension and the hostility between Jew and Samaritan. Would you know why, if someone asked you over lunch, why there was this tension? Where does it go back to? Remember last week, in order to really appreciate Nicodemus and who he was and what was going on, we did a little review of the Pharisees and when they came into existence and where they were by the time Nicodemus has this conversation with Jesus. The same is true here with Samaritans. This hostility goes back 700 years. Way back in 722 BC when God raised up the Assyrians to invade the northern kingdom of Israel. After the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel do you remember what they did? What their administrative policy was towards the nations they conquered? What would they do? They would take thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people from their homeland and take them into captivity into what we now understand as Iran and Iraq. So they would take tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Jews into what we would now understand as Iran, Iraq, that area. That was the first half. What would they do next? Do you remember? They would then take peoples from Mesopotamia. Okay? Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Mesopotamians. And they would take them back. And they put them in northern Israel. Okay? To repopulate the area. To work the land. Well, those people that the king of Assyria. You can learn about this in 2 Kings. 
the people that were transplanted from Mesopotamia to northern Israel, they brought their local gods with them. They brought their ways of worship with them. Okay? The king of Assyria sent some Jewish priests back with them to teach these Mesopotamians about the God of Israel. And those Mesopotamians that had been had been sent to resettle northern Israel, they brought their gods, they mixed the worship of their gods with the God of Israel, and they intermarried with some of the Jews who were left. And that is the explanation of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were hated by the Jews in the southern kingdom because they were viewed as being a mixed race of people, a people that had polluted the worship of the one true God with the worship of all these Mesopotamian gods. They had, they had intermarried with Israelites in the northern kingdom who should not have done that. And so they were viewed as being the ultimate outcast. Well, to make things worse, to make things worse, in 586 BC when God raised up the Babylonians to defeat the southern kingdom, and they took thousands of Jews into Babylon, okay? And they left the land empty, a waste. They only left the most impoverished of Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Well, the Samaritans in the north saw this vacuum, okay, that happened in 586 when all the people were taken out of the southern kingdom. So the Samaritans come down, and so they've repopulated all of Israel when the Jews return in 536 BC under Cyrus, the king of Persia. So let me stop here. I know this is a lot. Hope you can drink some coffee now. But in order to understand the deep-seated hatred, you have to understand this history. Samaritans were kind of introduced in 722 BC. They filled the land. They soiled the land from the perspective of the Jew. Then the Jews in the south are taken off into captivity. They're gone for almost 100 years. The Samaritans settle the whole land. Then when the Jews come back in 536 BC and they're building the temple, the Samaritans ask, can we help? Do y'all remember this in Ezra chapter 4? The Samaritans who are now, they've proliferated all over Israel, they want to help the Jews because see, they worship. They worship the Pentateuch, the God of the, the Pentateuch as well, these Samaritans. So they ask if they can help. What did Zerubbabel and the Jews say? No, you have no place with us. We are worshiping the God of Israel and you're not allowed. And, and you know, scholars view that some scholars view that as positive, that they were protecting the pure worship of God. Some say perhaps they could have been more gracious to the Samaritans. So that further entrenches the hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans are not allowed anywhere near the temple. About 100 years later, the Samaritans build their own temple in Mount Gerizim. That's where Jesus and the woman at the well are having this conversation. About a hundred years after the Jews get back and build their temple and they exclude the Samaritans, the Samaritans build their own temple. And they come up with their own place of worship, okay? 
And then a short time after that, the Jews come in and destroy it. So what do you think about how these people feel about each other? They cannot stand each other. To say there was hatred would be an understatement. That anything that the South experienced at the worst of the racial tensions, that's what's going on when Jesus goes to that well at noon in the middle of the day. Okay, that's the background. Also, what's incredible. There are so many literary features in this text. The author, John, wants us to read Jesus' conversation and interaction with the woman at the well. He wants us to read that alongside Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Reading the two together is imperative. There are so many similarities. Okay, are you ready? I'm going to list for you three similarities between Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus and the woman at the well. Number one, unusually, Jesus engages in an extended conversation with a person in close proximity. Very similar. He engages Nicodemus in an extended conversation in close proximity. He does the very same thing with the woman at the well. Okay? Nicodemus, who is he with when he has this conversation with Jesus? No one. He is alone when he looks for Jesus at night. Why? Because he's afraid and he's embarrassed about what others might think. Okay? Jesus has this conversation with the woman at the well at noon. That was the heat of the day when she knew no one would be there. Women would come and draw water in the early part of the morning when it's cool or in the late afternoon. You would never go alone in the middle of the day. The reason she went alone in the middle of the day is she had a scarlet letter on her chest. She was viewed to be a notorious sinner. And she was embarrassed or felt the disapproval of the people. And that's why she's alone. Amazing parallels. In both stories, Nicodemus and the woman, they initially take Jesus literally. Do they both not? Okay, so Nicodemus, he's confused when Jesus says, you have to be born again. He doesn't get it. He says, how can we be born from our mom a second time? What about the woman at the well? Jesus talks about living water that will flow from you. She's confused. What does she think he's talking about? What was living water in that context? It was like a spring, like a natural spring. She's like, I don't see a spring anywhere around here. What are you talking about? They both misunderstand. Both take him literally. Jesus uses metaphors in both that represent eternal life wrought by the Spirit. So these stories, they parallel each other in amazing ways, okay? So if you're a first century reader who's reading this for the first time, you would expect these stories to turn out a certain way based on the background of the characters, okay? You would expect for it to turn out favorably for Nicodemus and disfavorably for the woman at the well, okay? Nicodemus was a man. The Samaritan was a woman. Look at verse 27, John 4, 27. Why did the disciples marvel? It says they marveled because he was talking 
with a woman. It was very uncommon for men to talk with women in public. Number two, Nicodemus, he's given a name. What's the name of the Samaritan woman? What is it? We don't know. She is not given a name. She's simply referred to as a woman of Samaria. Three, we've talked about this, Nicodemus was a Jew. The woman at the well was a hated Samaritan, part of the wrong group of people with the wrong beliefs. Four, Nicodemus, what are his credentials? He's considered righteous. He is a Pharisee. She was a sinner and living with a man, not her husband. She was a rejected woman by a rejected people. Who was Nicodemus? He was, according to Jesus, the teacher of Israel. He was educated, brilliant. The woman of Samaria, no education. Women in those days were not afforded the kind of education that men were. So what does Nicodemus have going from him? For him, like from a superficial perspective, everything. He's got everything going for him. What does she have going for her? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. She's the bottom of the barrel. And clearly the expectation um, is that Nicodemus would be the one to get it and respond to Jesus' teaching. That's what you would expect. But the reality is totally different and unexpected. Now this has already been suggested. John has already given the reader a little tell, a little T-E-L-L. Did I say E-E? I'm sorry, T-E-L-L. He's already given the reader a little tell about where he's going. Okay? It's been suggested by the time of day that the conversations take place. Nicodemus, he comes by night. The woman at the well has her conversation by day. Now for those of you who had to read Romeo and Juliet in your high school English class, raise your hand if you had to read it at some point. Some of you may have just forgotten, but you probably had to read it. You might remember in Romeo and Juliet that the knights, they're beautiful. Romeo and Juliet, they meet at night. Romeo summons the courage to talk to her at night. They marry by night. The nights are wonderful. By contrast, in Romeo and Juliet, the days are evil. The Capulets and the Montagues, what do they do? They war during the day. Romeo accidentally kills Juliet's cousin during the day. During the day, he is banished. The exact opposite of that happens in the Gospel of John. Let me read to you a quote from one scholar. One scholar writes, and this is fascinating. The wavering Nicodemus, he comes at night. And in the night, he can't get his mind around this new reality before him in Jesus. Jesus is betrayed by Judas at night in the Gospel of John. Tried by Annas at night. Denied by Peter at night. But under the brightness of the noonday sun, the Samaritan woman, she comes and she hears and she believes. In John's gospel, the day and the light 
stands for truth. The night and the darkness symbolize the realm of the evil one and ignorance of God's truth. So there's all these things that you would not anticipate. Whereas Nicodemus, he's learned. He's intelligent. He's the teacher of Israel. He's the one who ends up confused and frustrated. His questions reveal the inability to get what Jesus is saying. And the interaction, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus gets shorter and shorter until it fades out altogether. The Samaritan woman has no education, no claim to know who Jesus is, and she ends up believing in him. Her questions become more and more focused as Jesus engages with her and enlightens her. She remains active in the conversation, and she says almost as much as Jesus does. She progresses in her understanding as the story goes along. Jesus is just a man, and then he becomes sir, and then she recognizes him as a prophet, and by the end, she recognizes him as the Christ of the living God. The point is, John is wanting you to see that Jesus' kingdom brings a massive reversal of expectations. One would expect Nicodemus to get it, to understand he doesn't get it. You would expect this Samaritan woman the least of the least, the hated of the hated, to leave rejected. And she understands the gospel. That's incredible. That she gets it and not Nicodemus. Although she was a woman and not a man. She was unknown and not named. She was an outsider, not an insider. She was a sinner and not religious. She was an outcast and not honored. She was uneducated and not a scholar. A lowly woman from rejected people. And she believed. And by the end, she left her water jar behind. She was so consumed with the one who knew everything about her and yet loved her and accepted her and offered to be her Messiah. Here's what's going on in the Gospel of John. You know, just before, like a, like a, a few verses ago, Jesus has turned over the tables, okay? He turned over the tables, okay? He's turning over the tables of their understanding. He's turning over the tables of Nicodemus's understanding. Their preconceived notions of who was religious and who needed the gospel. He's turning over the tables here. The gospel is for those who know their need. That's his point. There's all these new things. Nate preached that wonderful sermon about the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Where, where the newness of the new covenant is coming. Nicodemus needed a new understanding. God was in new ways reaching out to the least of these. To the Samaritan woman. What's the point? Who's the gospel for, do you think? The gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who know their need. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who know they have absolutely no hope of being made right with God apart from the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus said to her, bring your husband, why did he do that? He did that to demonstrate her spiritual need, her poverty, how immoral she had been. Okay, he presents himself as the Christ, 
as the answer. In other words, we've got to be just like her. We've got to repent of our self-righteousness and our pharisaical ways. We have to understand our neediness, our brokenness, and the only way to be saved is through this one who is the Christ. How does the narrative end? This is the question presented to the reader. The woman says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It seems too good to be true. Can he be the one? Oh, beloved, he's the one. He's the one. And he will do for us what he did for her. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father. We just, again, we don't have enough time to mine the riches of this text. Father, we thank you that you, that you sent the Lord Jesus to disrupt things, to disabuse them of their, of their spiritual pride and their complacency. Father, we thank you that you sent the disruptors of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus to, to disrupt their expectations of what it meant to be right with God, that the first at the end of the day, those who perceived that they had no need, would be last. And the last, those who knew their spiritual poverty, would ultimately be first because they would be the ones who would seek out the grace and the mercy that Jesus offers. Help us to do that very thing. Help us to understand that salvation comes through the Lord Jesus and that by trusting in him, living waters would come and proceed from us, that we would get a new heart, a new mind, new will, new emotions, a regenerated spirit to trust in you and hope in you. We pray all this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.